Welcome back to Season 4, Episode 15 of the FASD Family Life Podcast. This is the only show about FASD hosted by an FASD specialist and parent with a 30 years lived experience. I'm a mom to five incredible people, including three teens diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. As an FASD specialist, it is my passion to help families thrive. To learn more about me and my work, check out my brand new website, fasdfamilylife.ca. I started this podcast to be the friend I wish I had when my kids were young, and also to bring hope to weary parents. I wanted to share what I have learned working in residential treatment, in group homes, and raising my own children impacted by trauma and prenatal alcohol exposure. So I pour my heart and soul and hundreds of unpaid hours every month into the production of the FASD Family Life Podcast. And all that hard work is paying off. Since our launch in 2021, the podcast has grown to over 43,000 downloads worldwide. But I need your help to keep going. Consider becoming a monthly sponsor. Your gift of $20 per month would enable me to keep sharing hope and teach the skills needed to reduce stress and improve lives for people with FASD and the families who love them. And I've made it really easy. There's a link in the show notes that says support the show. Thank you in advance for your partnership with me in keeping this dream alive. This week, we're back again with my friend, Dr. Jared Brown, to continue our series, Threats to Emotional Health. In our last conversation, Dr. Brown was speaking about the detrimental effects of excessive sugar consumption. This week, we're going to be focusing our conversation on sugary drinks as a threat to emotional health. Jared Brown has a PhD and several master's degrees and many certificates. He is a professor, trainer, researcher, and consultant with multiple years of experience teaching collegiate courses. Jared is also the founder and CEO for the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies and editor-in-chief of Forensic Scholars Today. To learn more about Jared and the work he does, there is a link in the show notes. Jared, so great to have you back on the show today. We're going to continue our series threats to emotional well-being, this time sugar-sweetened beverages. I know this is a struggle we all have. Um, I'm really curious to hear what you've got to say. You bet. So I see this kind of as an extension of the other one we did where it was kind of a general overview on like excessive sugar consumption. And in that uh, recording, we talked a little bit about this topic, but we'll go a lot deeper into it today. But I always got to say this, I am not a nutritionist, but I have a lot of different certifications related to nutrition and health and wellness. Please talk to your healthcare provider before implementing anything. And this is just general education. I'm really going to look at this today through the lens of behavioral health. Okay. And if you're not familiar with behavioral health, just think of it as kind of the the impact that our behaviors have on our overall health and wellness and mind and body and spirit, which has a lot to do with our emotions, but it also has a lot to do with biochemistry. If you were to study behavioral health, you would be studying topics related to stress and anxiety and depression and grief and loss issues and addiction and social isolation and the list goes on and on. But part of behavioral health that I really love to study is the impact that screen time misuse has on our overall health and well-being, sleep issues, our eating habits, 
our drinking habits. And I'm not talking necessarily just about like alcohol, but what we're talking about today, sugar, sweet beverage consumption, and even exercise habits. All of these things can have either a positive or a negative impact on our overall health and well-being. Think of what I'm going to talk about today, too, within the era of COVID-19, because there's actually been a lot of research that has come out in these past few years that really took a look at how dietary patterns change during the COVID-19 lockdowns. And some of this research actually found that people increased their snacking behaviors. And it wasn't snacking on healthy things, typically. It was snacking on maybe it was chocolate or ice cream or more salty foods and processed foods. And we saw an increase in alcohol use. We saw an increase in screen time use. We saw an increase in depression, anxiety, all kinds of things. And some of this research, too, found a decrease in people's consumptions of vegetables and fruits and like whole grains and even eating fish. And they saw an increase too in some people decreasing their physical activity, living more of a sedentary lifestyle and increasing tobacco consumption as well. Robbie, any thoughts? I'll stop there for a second. I can hear what you're saying about the researchers have found the changes. Do, do they have any ideas to why? Was this fear-based that we changed so much? I mean, I remember the early days of the pandemic and we all felt like, well, we never lived through anything like this before. And will I have a job? And will I get sick? And, and then watching the news, watching as the tragedies began to unfold, why did people change? Everything you said would be factors to consider. I would also in, include in there uncertainty, yeah. which you kind of alluded to. There were definitely an increase in domestic violence during the mm -hmm. lockdowns around the world. So people at home and that there's lots of stress and trauma and adversity and fear and worry, a lot of those feelings can sometimes increase our cravings for sugar or things that might not be good for us because our neural hormones are off, our gut is off, maybe we're dealing with more sleep issues, maybe we're just so tired. And you're trying to help children learn online, but also manage your full-time job. So people maybe are increasing sugar, sweet beverage consumption because of caffeine as well, just to stay awake. So those were a few factors, including the ones you already mentioned. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. So when we get specific into sugar, sweetened beverages, and I'm going to be more looking at this through the lens of behavioral health. And think of more of excessive sugar-sweetened beverage consumption. If you're not familiar with what is a sugar-sweetened beverage, if you go through this literature, which there's a lot, people are probably surprised to hear that. There's numerous studies that have looked at multiple facets of this. Think of it as a liquid carbohydrate that really has a lot of added sugar in it. They're considered non-alcoholic beverages and non-diet types of drinks that have a lot of added sugar. Sugar-sweetened beverages are one of the largest, if not the largest source of calories of added sugar in the United States. Sugar-sweetened beverages typically provide no nutritional benefits. They can be hot drinks. They can be cold drinks. 
And a lot of times when we drink these beverages, it may quench our thirst for a little bit. But what happens with all the sugar and all the other things in these beverages, a lot of times it contributes to us feeling hungry. So we want to drink more or eat more. And obviously it can lead to a host of issues. And I'm going to talk about a lot of these issues and everything I'm pointing out is what's in the research literature. Now I've worked with a lot of clients and I've consulted on a lot of cases. And I would say the overwhelming majority of the cases I've consulted on, they have used a lot of sugar. It might not just be sugar sweet beverages, but I consult a lot on cases involving people diagnosed with autism, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, other neurodevelopmental disorders. And a lot of these individuals, at least the cases I've consulted on, they are using a very high amount of sugar and sugar-sweetened beverages. So what are some of the beverages that would fall under this umbrella? Energy drinks, fruit punches, regular soda, slushies, sports drinks, sweetened coffees, sweetened iced teas, vitamin waters that are loaded with sugar, sweetened powdered drinks. There's many more, but these are some of the main ones to really consider under that umbrella. If you were to go through this literature and really pull out all the studies that have looked at what are some of the consequences associated with excessive sugar-sweetened beverage consumption. It's, there, there are many and varied. And again, it can be different for lots of people. There's a lot of other factors going on too. I mean, are they also smoking? Are they also drinking alcohol? Are they never exercising? Are they dealing with high stress? Those kind of things. Sugar-sweetened beverage consumption may be a factor in allostatic load. And allostatic load is basically wear and tear in our body. It contributes to increased inflammation. It can make us look older. So it kind of increases the aging process. Allostatic load is going to be more common among people that have had extensive trauma histories. Things that can definitely trigger allostatic load and make it worse. Cigarettes chronic alcohol use, being in a domestic violence relationship, not getting good sleep, not taking care of ourselves in terms of exercise, being glued to the screen, anything that's going to increase stress in our body, throw off our hormones, impact our HPA access, the hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal access, that's allostatic load. Sugar-sweetened beverage consumption may increase inflammation in the body. And we know chronic low-grade inflammation is a driver of multiple kinds of diseases and illnesses and disorders. It's looked at it within the context of mood disorders. So it could be a factor in people having an increase in anxiety and depression in some cases. Obviously, if you're having tons and tons of sugar, it can throw off your insulin levels, so it may be a factor in insulin sensitivity or even full-blown insulin resistance. It's been looked at within the context of non-alcoholic liver disease. Kids that drink a ton of soda, they've looked at it within the context of academic performance, and some studies have shown that it may impact mathematic abilities and overall academic performance. Sleep issues hyperactivity, dental problems, cardiovascular disease. It's been studied within that context. It's been looked at within the context of asthma, 
the list goes on and on and on. So again, many of these are going to be psychological. Some are going to be physical. Some are going to be emotional, behavioral. They're all over the map. So I'm not telling people what to do at all. Talk to a nutritionist, but the research points to the fact that excessive consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages is a threat to emotional, behavioral, cognitive, and academic health and performance. Jared, I was surprised at the electrostatic load that excessive sugar, and of course we're talking about large amounts of sugary, sugar-sweetened beverages, contributes to the wear and tear on the body. One thing I'll say about that question is, why might that be the case? Why could this contribute to allostatic load? Because excessive sugar consumption in and of itself has been shown to impact sleep. So if we're not sleeping well, that's a factor. Excessive sugar consumption also has been shown to contribute to higher levels of oxidated stress. So people probably have heard of like antioxidants, which is a good thing. Oxidated stress, not so good. That can impact the body. It can impact our cellular health. And again, if let's say we're drinking tons of sugar, we're not eating healthy, we're not sleeping well, your gut is going to be off. So now we have a gut problem too. So I've talked about this off and on in some of the things we've done. Just being aware, if your gut is off, your brain is off. There's a gut-brain health connection. And when you study that, it's important to understand the vagus nerve. It's probably important to understand at least the basics of polyvagal theory. It's important to understand how all of this relates to cortisol in some cases. It can throw off glucose levels. It can throw off insulin levels. So all these things work together. And if these things are off, Our body's not working effectively. It's not communicating properly and it puts us under greater stress. And then that can obviously trickle down into having more allostatic load. I was just quickly looking at a study here that was suggesting that in 2008, people in the United States were consuming over 60 pounds of added sugar per year. And this does not include fruit juices. Wow. 60 pounds a year of sugar, and the average intake was 76.7 grams per day, which equals 19 teaspoons or 300 calories daily. So it's it's around, the math isn't perfect, but it's around three to four times more than what is recommended on a daily basis. I, I would encourage your audience too, just type in like the history of sugar. Go back to the late 1700s and see how much sugar was being consumed on a daily basis among folks living in America at that time compared to now. It's astronomically higher. And the sugar that was being consumed back then, most of the time, as far as I know, is coming from fruits and and natural sources, most cases. So huge, huge increase. Huge increase. And I'm seeing that according to the American Heart Association, the maximum amount of added sugars that we should eat daily are for men, 150 calories, which is, you know, nine teaspoons throughout the day. And that includes all your natural sugars. Women, 100 calories per day, which is six teaspoons. You know, we're having on average 350 calories a day, and we should be down in the 100 calorie range of sugars. So just to give some perspective here is what we're talking about. And that'd be something for all of us to consider 
you know, what our intake is. And it, it, I know myself, like, I love to have like a Barks root beer, like that's probably my favorite, but there's 45 grams of sugar in one can. And I'm supposed to mm-hmm. only have 25 grams a day. Yep. And there's 45 grams in one can of root beer. Yeah. So just for perspective. Yeah. I personally have worked with clients who have drank two separate two liters of pop in a day. I don't even know how many grams that is. That's probably enough for a month in one day, if not more. It's astronomically high. Why are people consuming so much sugar? The question sometimes comes up is because everywhere you turn, sugar's in everything. I mean, you have to be so intentional to make changes because sugar, obviously, biggest source is what we're talking about today, sugar sweet beverages, but fruit juice, 100% fruit juice chocolate milk, ketchup, barbecue sauce, granola and types of cereal. Just look at the cereal labels. They sneak canned fruits are loaded with sugar, canned soups. Peanut butter, jam, Nutella. It's everywhere. Everything we want to, everything we feed our kids, granola bars and those fruit snacks, those fruit gummies that they say are made with whole, made with real fruit. Yeah, maybe, but what else is in there? I know. Bread. Almost every single loaf of bread, if you go to the grocery store, at least where I go, sugar is in and it, it's tough. So you got to be intentional here. And it's it's spendy to not eat these things because sugar is put in things and high fructose corn syrup because it's cheap to make. And a lot of my clients and a lot of cases I've consulted on, they're on state funded programs. A lot are unemployed. They don't have access to a lot of money. So what's cheap? Fast food, things that are canned, things that are not that good for the body. And it's tough. I feel for a lot of people that are dealing with this stuff. Yeah, it's well, it's cheaper to eat that way. and But it's also, it, it, if it isn't the economics that are driving it, it's also probably we're craving the carbs, we're craving the sugar. Maybe it's even back to an evolutionary um, process where we're trying to survive. So we're trying to fatten up for, you know, whatever threat is coming in this unstable world. I mean, we don't need to do that anymore, but maybe that's part of what's driving it. But also sugary sweetened beverages are habit for me. If I have a can of root beer, after I finished it after a little while, I kind of want another one. Absolutely. And I wouldn't if it was a glass of water, probably, but there's the caffeine in it, but there's also the sugar in it that drives that. Oh gosh, that tasted really good. I'm or a yeah, piece of chocolate cake. I want another one, but we're fo- focusing on beverages today. So that's habit forming as well. Absolutely. So think of what, what are some of the possible correlates of sugar sweetened beverage consumption? So affordability is at the top of the list. It's cheap. Tastes good. I used to drink this stuff back in the day. I haven't had a, a soda in years. I can share my story with all this at some point, but lower levels of physical activity have been shown to associate with higher consumption of sugar, sweet beverages. Being male, parental modeling has a lot to do with it. So availability. So if you are in a household and there is availability to this and everyone else in the household is consuming it, well, you can about imagine what's going to happen. Excessive screen time exposure has been shown to be a contributing factor in increases in sugar consumption. Smoking, being aware of education levels. Some people just don't have the education around these things and don't realize the harmful effects. 
just not having a lot of access to fruits and vegetables has been shown to be a, a possible correlate. Limited nutritional knowledge in terms of like nutritional literacy or health literacy. So not knowing how to understand labels and read them and what does 40 grams of sugar even mean. So those are a few things. Living close to like a fast food joint or a convenience store has been shown to be a fact. Interesting how those are never in wealthy neighborhoods either. They taught lots of studies on that. Yes, there's definitely socioeconomic considerations and cultural considerations to take into account with this without a doubt. The research supports that. We could spend a lot of time on this. I know we don't have a ton of time today, but some other topics we can definitely dig deeper into in the future. And if people want to learn more about this, obviously working with a nutritionist, qualified healthcare professional, looking at some of the research just generally on ultra-processed foods or food addiction, those are some things you'd want to be aware of. But back to some of the things that we want to be aware of in terms of deficits, and I know obviously your podcast is focused on FASD, so I'm going to weave that in today too. But sugar, sweetened beverage consumption, there's been a few studies that have shown, some of the studies are inconsistent, but there's a good handful of studies that show that it could negatively impact a child's executive functioning capabilities. We know someone with FASD is 100% of the time going to have executive functioning impairments. Take FASD out of the equation if you have a child that is consuming high amounts of sugar-sweetened beverages, it could be a factor, not the only factor, in executive functioning problems. Impulse control issues have also been studied within this context. So if a child or an adult already has a pre-existing impulse control kind of problem or self-control or inhibition issues or that inability to delay gratification, that could be a factor in potential binge eating behaviors, overeating, and the increased likelihood they may turn to sugar-sweetened beverage consumption. Couple studies I know, and I think the study, or at least the one study I, I can think of, looked at males, and they found that sugar-sweetened beverage consumption among males contributed to more decision-making problems, and that was partially related to inhibition. And inhibition is under the umbrella of executive function. I mentioned the mathematical issues just briefly before. There was a study that has looked at that. And there one study found that kids who are consuming higher levels of kind of processed foods, poor diets, sugar-sweetened beverages, it was associated with an increased likelihood that they were going to have more problems with mathematics as well. Depression has been studied within this context as well. And there's some evidence also to support the fact that children and adolescents who consume high levels of sugar-sweetened beverages may be more likely to be dealing with depression. Again, there's probably other variables at play. That is one area maybe to, to be aware of and another good reason maybe to consult with a nutritionist as a possible intervention. Not a lot specific on sugar-sweetened beverages and previous trauma exposure. There's a, there's a few out there, but some studies indicate that people that have had higher levels of childhood trauma may be more likely to stress eat, to binge eat, to deal with obesity problems. So really taking that into account as well. I can say 
without a doubt, anecdotally, I have worked with multiple clients who've dealt with chronic obesity issues. And most of them are consuming high amounts of sugar and sugar-sweetened beverages. Specifically FASD, there's a few studies that have looked at fetal alcohol spectrum disorder within the context of like poor dietary habits. And a few of these studies, and again, there's only a few right now, show that at least these sample sizes that they looked at, they were dealing with more deficiencies in micronutrients and having some more problematic feeding behavior patterns. And their diets were higher in like simple sugars and soft drinks, fruit juices, just added sugars. And it might increase the risk for some of these individuals to be dealing with obesity or overweight problems in childhood. Anecdotally, again, a lot of the cases I've consulted on when it's been FASD, they've had an unusual relationship with food. I've seen it go a couple ways. A lot of clients I've seen are dealing with obesity issues, particularly the female clients in the cases I've consulted on. The males, some of them were underweight, Mm -hmm. which was unusual, where they didn't have like a huge appetite. I've seen this go both ways. Mm -hmm. I've seen some males too that have been overweight. I've seen some females underweight, but it's just something to be aware of. Unfortunately too, the likelihood of infants consuming sugar-sweetened beverages are higher than we think. I know that there was one study that indicated as many as 26% of infants consume sugar-sweetened beverages during the first year of life. And again, if you probably talk to a nutritionist or go online and look at nutritional guidelines, you'll see that it's absolutely not recommended. That is not good for brain development and cognition. Some of your audience might be familiar with like the studies around the first 1,000 days of life, that is from conception all the way up to that 1,000 day. And they look at vulnerabilities during that first 1,000 days of life in utero as well. And they have talked about sugar-sweetened beverage consumption during that time can be very problematic. Obviously, any kinds of other exposures to harmful chemicals, drugs, alcohol, trauma, adversity, definitely things to be aware of. If any of you are in college or you have a a son or a daughter in college, there is evidence too that college students may be more prone to consuming higher amounts of sugar-sweetened beverages. A lot of reasons for that again too, but there's some studies on that you'd want to be aware of. Robbie, any thoughts now before I get into just some interventions and things like that? No, I'm just busy taking notes and wondering where we're going next. And I'm having a lot of uh, just aha moments here. So keep on going, my friend. Yeah, we can definitely continue to revisit this topic if we want to go deeper into it. But I'll just give a few interventions that the research literature points to. And obviously, you want to look at what's going on in the house. Parental modeling, accessibility socioeconomic status? Is there stress-relating eating going on? What about self-efficacy? Just having awareness of these things around what, what constitutes healthy eating. Again, another wonderful reason to consult with your healthcare provider or nutritionist because they might be a very valuable team member 
that a lot of people may not think about as being a, a really helpful intervention. If you go in to meet with a doctor, nutritionist, sometimes they might conduct a very comprehensive lifestyle or social history, just looking at a lot of the variables that could be going on. Stress, trauma, adversity, worry, hardship, sleep issues, employment status. What about if someone's in a job and they despise their job, they're miserable, and the only thing that gives them temporary relief is eating binge eating on sugar where it gives them maybe a, a little relief, but then all those emotions come flooding back. So is there burnout going on in the job? Or maybe there's parental burnout because you have a lot of special needs children and the need is great and you're neglecting your own care and you're never sleeping. Those kind of things, social isolation, any kind of untreated mental health, substance use issues as well. Sometimes, depending on the professional, they may look or dig into the client's tobacco use history, caffeine intake, maybe looking at technology use habits, looking at weight gain or patterns of losing a lot of weight, putting lots of weight on, even drinking habits in terms of just general fluid consumption. Is someone just pounding down like non-sugar sweetened beverages, but diet Cokes too, or diet colas or something like that, that can have a detrimental impact. Could there be untreated, untreated sleep disorder going on? Maybe there's an untreated pain disorder going on if someone's dealing with a lot of pain and that stress eating is like helping in the short term, but then that pain just, just rushes back. So those are some things you'd want to think about. A couple other things too. When you go into this literature, self-regulation comes up a lot. So maybe it's working with someone and you're learning self-regulation skills or self-control skills or that ability to kind of put on the brakes and pause and reflect. Executive functioning interventions may be helpful. Metacognition training. There's some good studies on metacognition training and improving overall health and wellness. And you've, start, you've mentioned that before, Jared, and with the metacognition and the kind of executive functioning training, you said that there was some kind of even workbooks that are available. So there are things that maybe are more accessible if you can't find an expert or, or a therapist trained in that in your area. Although, of course, that's best, but you said that there are maybe workbooks available for people. Yeah, people can go online and Google that. There's good videos online, but even finding an executive functioning coach. Some coaches will do things online. Now, how many of them specialize in this area? I have no clue. I've never come across one, but that doesn't mean they're they're not out there. Reducing screen time. I, I can say safely that that's a good thing. Cut down in your screen time exposure. Get up, move around. Psychoeducation can be very helpful. Just the very nature of learning these things has really helped me personally make better decisions around my health and wellness. So just learning about these things, improving our self-efficacy. So helping us improve our own belief system and improve our confidence and decision-making and even focusing on improving our overall emotional intelligence can be helpful. Low levels of self-esteem could be one factor as to why some people consume high amounts of sugar-sweetened beverages. So someone's dealing with a lot of self-esteem issues, low self-worth, high levels of shame. Those could be good target areas. Optimism and gratitude and resilience 
and promoting hopeful thinking have all been linked to having better emotional, behavioral, and physical health outcomes as well. And focusing on strengths-based approaches, attachment-based interventions, trauma-informed care, and anything we can do to improve our sleep can be some really, really good things to take into account. I know there was one study that was done, there might be more, but controlling the use of smartphones in school and in the home environment may be an avenue to explore too, which then this can help improve communication skills and hopefully trickle down into teaching that adolescent or even adult ways to reduce their daily consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages. Those are just a few, a good snapshot overview, but wanted to see if there's any other questions, any other angles you want me to cover. Let's start with the home because you said, let's examine what's happening in the home and let's talk about parental modeling here and without any shame or blame, because this comes back to when you know better, you do better. So that's, that's the approach, right? And yes. like for you, you said you used to consume sugary, sugar sweetened beverages before. And as you've learned more and more about the adverse uh, effects that they have, you've cut that out of your life. Yes. And let's begin with that. So what are some baby steps, Jared, that you think, and I know you're not a nutritionist, but just from what you've done in your own life, what, how you've counseled your clients, what are some of the very baby steps a family can to take today and over the next bit of time? If you notice that you're dealing with some issues in these areas, talk, get a referral to a nutritionist or a dietitian or somebody that could maybe provide your family with some education guidance or setting up a meal plan. I think that would be a good thing. With the parental modeling, I'll give you my own example. My father drank pop like it was going out of style. He, he owned his own business. I used to go there in the summer when I was a kid and, and do work with him. He was in construction. He was pounding down the sodas all the time. Guess what I was doing? I was too. I had no clue what I was doing. I was young and stuff. He died at a very, very young age in his 50s. He did not take care of himself, had diabetes. I wish I would have known what I know now back then. He didn't know either. No one would knew that. But again, parental modeling has a lot to do with it. What you do and what you model to your kids, a lot of times kids will do that in terms of screen time use, in terms of how you handle stress, in terms of when you go to bed at night. Just being aware of, of the modeling with this. And there's a whole line of literature on self-regulated parenting and modeling self-control. That's, that's some good stuff because mm-hmm. guess what happens? The kids that observe parents regulated typically grow up and are more regulated adults. Now, here's the caveat. If you have a child with FASD, it's a little trickier than that. Obviously, you can be the most regulated adult in the world. But if you're trying to model these things to someone with FASD, you might see inconsistent patterns, but stay the course because you probably will see benefits over the long haul. You might not see them in the very, very short term. But anecdotally, what I hear, and Robbie, I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you start throwing high amounts of sugar into the equation and sugar-sweetened beverages into someone that has an FASD brain, that does not help self-control. It doesn't help sleep. 
I don't know. What, what have you seen with that? What, what, what have I seen when my kid comes home with an energy drink full of red food dye and sugar and caffeine? What have I seen? It's not peace, love, and groovy. That's that's not what I've seen. Um, I mean, he's happy while he's drinking it and he's having a great time. Um, and I'm saying, I don't want you to drinking that. That's poison, essentially. I don't want you drinking that. And so, you know, he's had some of it. And then once he gets home, um, he's like, well, I'll save it for later. And I always make that voice because that's kind of what he sounds like. And so we put it in the fridge. But then, you know, this kid who already has sleep disorders, you know, because of the very nature of his disabilities, he already has sleep disorders. He's lying in bed and his body is twitching and moving and he can't sleep. And mom, I can't sleep. And of course, you know, with with the uh, executive dysfunction, he doesn't link A to B. You know, what I did, you know, what I did before can't possibly affect what's happening now. And so it just exasperates what's already a difficult situation. And I see that too, that increased sugar, it increases the irritability. It decreases the appetite. Like then he just, he or my girls, like all of us, if we're drinking pop or soda or energy drinks, then that's kind of more of what we want. And we want less food perhaps, right? Or we want less healthy food. And I see that in, in him as well. He's the one who's always looking for um, the sugar when people are consuming high levels of sugar, then there's a cravings for high level of sugar. And that's where, that's the cycle we're in right now. Well, then the irritability increases, but the aggression increases the demand for it because the cravings are so strong. And then also Jared, just as you talked about already with an individual with FASD, we lack inhibition, we lack self-control, we lack um, perspective taking, executive functioning. So it just turns bad really, really fast. Everything you've said, I have observed professionally, and I hear similar stories from other caregivers or group home members that are responsible for helping that client live a healthy lifestyle. And this isn't just for kids and teenagers. Most of the cases I consult on, they're older teenagers or adults. And right. it's, I think this stuff applies throughout the lifespan, I in my so opinion. Too. Then there's the cravings for sugar. And then when there's the denial of that, then there's that, you know, and all of our individuals with FASD have such a difficult time with that answer. No, when something that they want isn't available to them, at least I see this in childhood and adolescence. Um, and perhaps it carries on into the 20s because that's still kind of a time of adolescence developmentally for our young people. And so even when we're saying no to something because it's in their best interest, uh, we, we get a big pushback. We usually get uh, you know, that can be, that can fan the flames into frustration, which then can go to aggression, even verbal aggression, perhaps physical aggression, holes in the walls, stomping upstairs, broken things. I mean, this is kind of what, this is what happens in our lives if we're just going to get real about it. And so if we add the high levels of sugar sweetened beverages to that, and then we're trying to say no, um, or we do say no to that, that's just one more factor that we're dealing with. So uh, I was thinking like if back to the pr practicality, what can families do? Um, one, one simple thing, and maybe it's not so simple, but for in our situation, what the only thing, the only way we are able to limit, uh, some things that are really unhealthy for our kids is just simply not buy them, just simply not have them in our home. Because if they're in our home, our kids are really seeking it. And even if we say no and have it locked up, they find a way to get it. So rather than having that, uh, temptation, that, that thing that's driving this frustration for them, if we just don't buy it. So in our case, like we just don't buy soda. 
uh, unless every once in a while we might have some diet soda around, particularly in the summertime, but even that's, you know, limited, but we just don't have soda in our fridge. We just don't have juice in our fridge. We have uh, water. We have soy beverages because they're lactose intolerant. And even that has sugar, Jared, that has so much sugar in it, the soy beverages. Um, but fortunately, they pretty much only have that on on cereal. And that's another another good reminder. Talk to a nutritionist because maybe there's a food allergy at play and having the person tested and not to challenge you too much, Robbie, but I with the diet soda. Just do oh, a little research. Oh, I know research. it's not good. No, no, do, no. Do a little research on that. <laughs> and th- there's a debate. Is that worse than sugar sweet beverages? I've heard that it might be. I've heard that it might I'm be. I'm not going to say either way, but definitely look <laughs> at the research, talk to a nutritionist, and the research isn't doesn't put a smile on my face. Let's just say that. What's the alternative? Water, 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 water. And if you're blessed to live in a community that has, held, has safe water, you could just turn on the tap. It's always available and you can drink water. And that's what we promote a lot in our house is we have water with every meal, including breakfast. We have water with every meal. And, you know, that's that's what's literally on tap. That's what's available for our kids to be drinking and ourselves. I mean, that's what we're modeling, too, is water. Of course, everybody knows I'm a coffee drinker. That's true. Um, I drink coffee as well. But um, with meals for just to be refreshed, it's water that that we are modeling and drinking, not to set ourselves up as being perfect. That's just a transition we've made. And that's a transition families can can make um, as well as go to water and and then even experiment with that, because some families prefer individuals might prefer ice water. I mean, and this is so basic, but this matters. Like in our family, we've got people who only want to drink filtered water like a Brita. Other people only want to drink room temperature. Other people want ice cold. So, you know, but we can, we can make, get the water so it's more satisfying for the person. I think that's helpful too. When you bring up water, there's a couple studies that have actually been published on promoting metacognitive, really metacognitive awareness and how that can help people make better decisions with their drinking habits in terms of what they consume for fluids. Really fascinating. And a metacognition is, again, thinking about thinking, knowing about knowing. It's related to increases in self-awareness. It's the ultimate executive function. And in the research literature for FASD, there's actually a couple studies that show that metacognition training has been shown to help people with FASD improve their thinking. I'm not saying it's curing anything, but it's been shown to help get things better. I've seen that true. I've seen that happen in my, in my case, uh, with my kids. And it's helpful if it doesn't all come from mom, right? So if you have maybe an occupational therapist that's teaching the kids about, you know, thinking about thinking, thinking, just challenging. Oh, what do you think about that? Or just helping along. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a psychotherapist, an occupational therapist. Also the school programs, the, the school my children happen to go to, they have, they are really intentional about their social emotional health within the school. So they weave topics like health, nutrition, and thinking about thinking and just helping the kids grow in that area across all subject matters. And so it kind of goes back to that psychoeducation you're talking about too, just kind of like the more you know about something, uh, the more informed choices you can make. And then if you think about how you're thinking about something, uh, you further are able to grow in that and make better choices. And I do see that. 
Not my son. He's young. Like I wouldn't say that's a capacity of a 14 year old, 15 year old boy, neurotypical or otherwise. Um, let's, we need to give our kids some grace and some time to grow up as well. When you think about that too, like if someone went to like a, a nutrition specialist, sometimes they'll work on helping people understand their knowledge of food and their values. What's their values around food? or their attitudes too, or their skills. And even there's cultural considerations to take into account with some of this stuff. Very true. Very true. Like culturally, what is it that your family tends to make? You know, what kind of foods do you eat? And then what are your values around? Do you have to eat everything on your plate? Is it okay to say I'm full and I don't want any more? Or is it the expectation that you have to eat everything on your plate no matter what? Is every meal followed by a dessert? You know, is every, so yes, how are things done in your family? How are things done culturally? And be respectful of of those things. And then how, what are the even micro shifts we can make so that even if we make a small change over time, incremental change over time, that can make a big difference in people's lives. Huge. I agree. Yeah. I like the micro changes, just starting small. Yeah. A lot of like cutting cold turkey. I mean, that would be awesome, but. Most people don't do well with cutting cold turkey on anything. Uh, on anything. Sometimes it might be maybe the pop, maybe some people can, but, or, or say, okay, well, only for a special occasion. And isn't that funny? I mean, let's just say, what do you do for a kid's birthday party? You've got the fast food, you've got the soda, and then you've got the cake with all the sugar on it and the ice cream. But that's how we celebrate, right? Know, and so what can we do differently? <laughs> Moderation, Um, looking at portion sizes, understanding what a true portion is, because I don't think people realize how small a portion really is. And sometimes people don't realize you might be having two or three portions, even though you think you're having one portion on your plate. Well, our dinner plates have gotten bigger. Our cups have gotten bigger. Like when I was thinking about, we've had to introduce back just because of some medication, taking iron, we've had to increase, we've had to have orange juice now, um, iron solubility for one of our kids. So I was looking at like, gosh, we're going through an awful lot of orange juice. And then I'm looking at the size of my, my glasses that are in my cupboard and they must be 16 or 20 ounce glasses. You know, and I'm like, wow. Cause I, and then I went to the store to try to buy an eight ounce glass. Here I couldn't even find an eight ounce glass. It's intentional, I, it's, I suspect. But even those are the micro changes we could make. We could have smaller dinner plates. We could go to the thrift shop and buy smaller glassware. You know, like there's just little things we could do to make some shifts just to make it really practical for families. And what if I did the experiment of buying ketchup that didn't have sugar? I wonder if anybody would notice. I'd have Probably. a rub. It's a, first. <laughs> it's a major food group. It's a food group in my family. So I kept it as its own food group. So maybe, maybe I do half and half. I blend it over time so they get used to it. I don't know. Or is that the hill I want to die on? But thank you for this information, Jared. You've given us all a lot to think about. I'm going to be thinking about what are the practical steps I can do. So everybody who's listening, I'd love to hear your stories you know, what shifts have you made? Write to me and let me know. And I know Jared would love to love to hear uh, what your takeaway was from this episode. Absolutely. And Robbie, I know we're going to be continuing to dive deeper into threats to emotional health. 
Even it might be interesting for your audience if we did one on insulin dysregulation. There's actually some studies in the FASD world about prenatal alcohol exposure and how this all factors into really fascinating research and scary too. Fascinating and important to talk about. And it dovetails beautifully with an episode I had with that talked about the lay of land survey, which was a survey that was done by individuals, adults who have FASD. And they kind of discovered that there are these 428 comorbidities within that FASD population. People who have prenatal alcohol exposure are at higher risk of having other disease presentation, other challenges in their lives. So it's definitely worth talking about that and diving into that literature. Yes, thank you very much. And I love that we're going to talk about the gut-brain connection. And um, I recently heard about a study that's happening in Canada. They're looking for participants, both adults and then a separate one for children, looking at exactly that for people who have prenatal alcohol exposure and or FASD. And they're looking, they're trying to get samples so that they can study exactly that, the gut brain health connection. So this is beautiful that we're bringing this all together for families to learn about. I'm so glad they're doing that. There's a ton on autism and the gut, not yeah. much on FASD in the gut. And that's what these researchers found. And they're really curious and they know there's a lot in the autism community. And they're like, well, what about this community? And they're really keen to dig in. So everybody who's listening, listen to that episode with about the gut brain research and then participate, participate, participate. When we participate, then we are contributing to the data and that informs all of us. So thank you so much. Jared, thank you for your time. I know you're a busy guy. You've got to get going. Thank you. And I look forward to talking to you again. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Robbie. Again, thank you to my friend, Dr. Brown, for making himself available and giving us his time to teach us and to help us as we are raising our children and caring for individuals who have FASD. So it's so valuable to learn about the various threats to emotional well-being. Be sure to join me for an upcoming episode of the FASD Family Life Podcast when I continue my world tour and I take you down under. We will meet Holly Ann Martin. And we'll be discussing the importance of safeguarding our children in the online world. Holly Ann tells us it's never too early to start training our children, and she has developed an innovative program to help us do that. Click the subscribe button now so you never miss another episode of the podcast. And while you're there, leave a comment and rate the show because that helps other people find the podcast. Are you looking to go deeper in your understanding of FASD? Well, register for my live online. FASD parent training course called FASD Brain Domains, starting on January 23rd. This course will explain the 10 brain domains and how they are damaged by prenatal alcohol exposure. You will also gain the knowledge and practical skills you need to transform your family life from the very first class. This course is presented by FASD specialist. Robbie Seal, myself, and Mary Ellen McPhail, Executive Director of O'Shea's Brain Domain in Scotland. Now, you always hear me talking about the importance of having our tribe, finding people who have a common experience. I invite you to join our community of support. The FASD Family Life Community is a support group that meets on the third Tuesday of every month at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And I hope to meet you there. You can go to the link in the show notes of FASDFamilyLife.ca to subscribe today for only $10 a month or $100 for an annual subscription. As always, thank you for spending your time with me. I know it's precious. And until next week, remember, the struggle is real and so is success.
I'll speak with you soon.